Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, as I mentioned, in, in the evening we're beginning a new series on the eschatology, the study of the last things, of the end times. Uh, but this mor- in the mornings we're uh, resuming our study in the Gospel of Romans, we might say. This glorious letter of Paul, uh, we in the fall preached through uh, chapter 3, verse 20, and so we pick up where we left off, chapter 3, uh, verse 21. Uh, this morning I want us to read, uh, though, verse 19 through verse 26, that we might have the context set for us once again. This is a glorious text, and so I encourage you to pay close attention to it. This is God's Word. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Lord, we thank you that by your spirit, You inspired the Apostle Paul to pen these words. Lord, all scripture is useful, is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. So Lord, would you equip us now that we might walk in every good work, that we might believe the gospel, that the unconverted might see the light of your glory in the face of Christ, and that those who already belong to you, O Lord, might have their hearts grounded even more deeply and these glorious realities. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. Would you come now by your spirit and be our great prophet that we might know you more. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A few years ago, I took my son Daniel out to my stepsister's house in Steamboat Springs, Colorado to ski for a couple days for his 16th birthday. Uh, My Uh, plan was to uh, arrive in in Denver on our frontier flight from Jackson in the late afternoon and then to rent a car uh, and to drive up to Steamboat Springs to be with my stepsister and her family. Uh, When I told that plan to my stepsister, uh, she strongly urged me not to do that. She says, Caleb, you were born and grew up in Louisiana. You live in Mississippi. You don't know how to drive on these mountainous roads. And in the winter, it, it is likely that it will be uh, very treacherous, and it is likely that you will fall off the mountain, right? So here's what I want you to do, she said. There is a shuttle that goes from the airport that will drop you off at our house in Steamboat Springs. That is what you need to do. And so uh, I listened to my stepsister, which turned out to be a really, really good decision. 
Because indeed the, the roads were treacherous. They were bad. I wouldn't have been able to drive. We probably would have fallen off the mountain on our way up to Steamboat Springs. Now what my stepsister told me sounds a whole lot like what the Apostle Paul is saying in our text this morning, except there's no might or very likely or possibly or probably in them. Paul has told us here in verse 20, by the works of the law, no human being will be, can be justified, declared righteous in God's sight. There is no possible way to make it up the mountain of righteousness by your own abilities or in your own strength or in your own obedience to God's law, you will absolutely drive off the cliff of your self-righteousness. The law, Paul has told us, only reveals to us how sinful we truly are. That's what Paul has been showing us from the beginning of this letter. He's been driving home this point that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. All of us are deserving of the wrath of God and will one day stand before his judgment seat and will have to give an account of all of our thoughts, all of our desires, all of our affections, all of our longings, all of our words, all of our actions, all of our feelings, everything. And Paul tells us there in verses 19 and 20, that every mouth will be stopped. We will have nothing to say in our defense. We will be accountable to God on judgment day. So what hope do we have? Well, the hope that we have is that there is a shuttle up the mountains. And unlike the shuttle I took from Denver to Steamboat Springs, which actually cost more than the cheap frontier flight from Jackson to Denver, this shuttle is gloriously free. It is free. It is a free gift. The free gift of righteousness. It costs nothing, but it is freely available to each and every person who believes in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage that is before us is foundational to our understanding of this good news of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ, our only hope is sinners. And so I want us to consider it this morning under three heads. First, righteousness revealed. Secondly, righteousness received. And thirdly, righteousness reasserted. Righteousness revealed, received, and reasserted. Let's think about these three things this morning from Paul. First, righteousness revealed. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now, as I mentioned, from 1.18 to 3.20, Paul has been establishing the guilt and the sinfulness of every single person. And now he begins to unpack his glorious thesis that we read back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul knows that now... We're finally ready to hear of the solution, God's solution, for our predicament. But now, he writes, at the fullness of the times, at the end of the ages, which end began, as you'll hear this evening, 2,000 years ago. But now, God has manifested the only way of salvation that is available to sinners. And what is that way of salvation? He tells us it is the righteousness of God, his gift of righteousness for sinners revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And now notice what Paul says. This righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. In the, the, the Greek, that little phrase is actually at the beginning of the sentence. But now, apart from the law, Paul writes, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This is one of the main points that he's trying to make in this entire letter. And so he emphasizes it front and center. The road of salvation is closed. Right? The bridge of self-righteousness is out. The mountain of works righteousness is utterly unclimbable and impassable. But God's righteousness for the salvation of sinners, it comes without any contribution at all from our law-keeping. Not even the tiniest percentage. Indeed, as Paul has shown us, the law of God is powerless to justify sinners. Why? Because we keep breaking it. We keep disobeying it. There is no way that the works of the law can be any part of our justification, our righteousness before God. Your sin-tainted works have as, as much of a chance of surviving the holy wrath of God as a snowball, which we will likely not see this winter, you bring, brought into your living room and put into the fireplace. There's no way it can survive. There's no way your works can survive the holy wrath of a holy God. Righteousness is apart from the law. But don't make the mistake of thinking that, that this but now and this apart from the law mean that the revelation of God's gift of righteousness came out of nowhere. That it, that it was introduced for the first time 2,000 years ago when Jesus arrived on the scene. No, what does Paul tell us? He tells us here that this righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets. They bear witness to it. He's not saying that Old Testament saints were, were saved somehow by their obedience to the law of God, but now that Jesus has come, it's by grace, it's by the righteousness of God. No, not at all. The law and the prophets, that is the whole of Old Covenant, Old Testament revelation, bear witness to it. Now notice, this is important. Paul is using the word law in different senses here, isn't he? He can easily move back and forth between these different senses. We'll see that again next week when we look at the end of chapter 3. He is, he is saying, in one sense, the law, that is the works of the law, stand in opposition to salvation by God's righteousness. But in another sense, the law, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, proclaims salvation by God's righteousness. Paul has already showed us this. He's going to show it to us throughout this letter. The law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament, teach from beginning to end that salvation has always been by grace through faith, by the crediting of God's righteousness to sinners through faith. But now, Paul is telling us, but now, in the New Testament, in the writings of Jesus' apostles, in this era of the gospel. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That it has been plainly, clearly, publicly displayed for all to see. I'm sure you've heard this illustration before, but it's so good that it bears repeating. I think it goes back to, to Augustine in the 5th century. It's so helpful. It's 
this sense that the Old Testament is, is a room fully furnished, but it's a dark room. And what happens when Jesus comes? This dark room, this room that's in the shadows, you can feel the furniture as you walk around in the pitch black darkness. You know something is there, but you don't know exactly what it looks like and how it's laid out. But when Jesus appears, it's as if the light switch is flipped and all of a sudden everything is illuminated. Nothing's changed about what's in the room. It was already there, but it was in the dark. Now it's in the light. Everything comes into full view. That's what Paul is saying here. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed, has been displayed publicly. But this righteousness, it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The truth of salvation by the gift of God's righteousness was already and always present in the church, but now it has been undoubtedly, unmistakably revealed so that the whole world might receive it. But how do we receive this gift of righteousness? That's our second point, righteousness revealed and now righteousness received. In verses 22 through 24, Paul uses three prepositional phrases that speak to the channels in which God's righteousness come to a sinner. In verse 22, he declares the righteousness of God that he had mentioned and spoken of, of, of in verse 21. This righteousness of God is the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then in verse 24, he writes that sinners are justified by his grace freely as a gift. And that justification, righteousness, it, it comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let's think about each one of these prepositional phrases briefly. Paul tells us we receive God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to that, through faith in Jesus Christ. The faith that saves is not a general or a generic faith. Sometimes you hear, maybe you've even said of a person, ah, he's a, a person of faith. Well, that's a meaningless statement. It's a redundant statement. If you're a person if you're alive and, and breathing and living here on this earth, you have some faith. You have faith in something or in somebody. Right? You are a person of faith. Everyone's a person of faith. You walked into this room. I don't see anyone standing up but myself. Right? You walked into this room. You, you looked at the, the chairs that were here on the floor. You appreciated their craftsmanship. You uh, assumed that we wouldn't buy chairs that wouldn't hold people up. You saw that other people were sitting in the chairs. You remembered that you yourself had sat in those chairs previously and it held you up. And so you trusted, you believed that this chair would hold you up and you sat down in it. Right? You are a person of faith. But being a person of faith that chairs would hold you up has nothing to do with salvation, does it? no. Saving faith, justifying faith, has a specific content, has a specific object. It is faith in Jesus Christ. To receive the righteousness of God, Paul says, you must believe. You must be a person of faith in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the Son of God whom the Father sent into this world to live a sinless life so that he might be the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people in all the world through 
His death on the cross. Jesus, who is the Redeemer, who died to ransom for Himself a people out of our slavery to sin. Jesus, who paid our debts, who freed us from the wrath of God that we deserved. This is saving faith. But again, it's not enough to to know these things intellectually or to nod your head in assent. Yes, that's who Jesus is. And yes, if someone believes in Jesus, they will be saved. No, saving faith is a faith like you did this morning that places yourself fully in the seat of who Jesus is. Rest fully, your full weight on him and in him. The person who has justifying faith, as the catechism question right after the two that we confess this morning says, is the person who is so convinced of his sin and his misery, so convinced of his disability to save himself out of his lost condition, that he so cast himself fully on Jesus, receiving and resting on him and his righteousness alone for pardon of sin, for acceptance as righteous in the sight of God. That is saving faith. We are justified. We are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on to tell us that we receive the righteousness of God by the grace of God as a gift. We are justified before God without any merit of our own. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. We can't purchase it with resources that we possess. There is nothing in us at any point that predisposes God toward us or that leads God to justify us. It is a free gift. We receive his righteousness as objects of pure charity, which oftentimes, for some of you, is a very hard truth to accept. You don't want to be an object of charity. You bristle at the freeness of grace. Why? Because you know that it it means that he owes you nothing. You owe him everything. There is nothing that he cannot ask of you. He has given you all freely, undeservedly. Whereas if you were a paying customer, if you were someone who had had bought this, you had paid good money for this, you would have rights. You would be able to ask to speak to the manager when things went wrong. You would say, hey, I I demand satisfaction. Things are not going the way they ought to go. I've I've paid good money for this. I want my money back. But Paul says, no, salvation is a free gift. Salvation, the righteousness of God, it's a gracious gift. And here's the beauty of these truths. If, If righteousness is by grace through faith, then what does this mean but that anybody can be saved? Anyone. Perhaps you read verse 22, and you thought, well, that's a redundancy. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why did Paul add that last little phrase? He had just said that it was through faith in Jesus Christ. Why does he now add for all who believe? What's the point? Well, again, Paul is driving home a a, a grand theme in this letter, the theme that God's righteousness in Jesus Christ is available no matter who you are, no matter what You've done, for there is no distinction, says Paul. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
There's no difference when it comes to our being sinful and and failing to live for and to reflect God's glory in our lives. And therefore, there's no distinction in the fact that we're all of us under God's wrath and curse. And all of us need a righteousness outside of ourselves. And just as this is the case, Paul is saying, so there is no difference in who can receive the righteousness of God. There is no distinction in what you receive if you believe in Jesus Christ. The gospel is gloriously available to all. It is received through faith. And if you receive Jesus by faith, by grace, you receive his righteousness. Have you noticed over the past two years how different getting COVID has been from person to person? If you have received COVID, as it were, then you perhaps just had a, you know, some sniffles, congestion, maybe a little bit of fever, or maybe you lost your sense of taste and smell and you lost stamina for weeks and months, or maybe you had pneumonia, you were near to death. Perhaps you know someone who has died from COVID. Why the difference? Why the variability? What's going on here? Well, of course, we have no idea, do we? It it has something to do perhaps with the strain of COVID you received, the viral load you received, your genetics, right? Your underlying health conditions and comorbidities. Did you ever think that the word comorbidity would be in your vocabulary, right? We have no idea how COVID might affect us. But Paul is saying here that the gospel is not like this. There is no discrimination, no difference, no distinction. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is justified freely by grace. God's righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus is invariably effective unto salvation. No one, Paul is saying, is too bad to be accepted. No one is too sinful to be declared righteous. No one is too broken to be fixed. No one is too messy to be clean. And all of this is true because of the the last prepositional phrase that Paul uses here, the last way that Paul says we receive God's righteousness. This righteousness that we receive freely also comes to us by the payment of a price. But it's not a price that you paid or that I paid. No, it's a price that Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, paid. We are justified by his grace as a gift, says verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're honest, you probably will say, yeah, what does redemption mean again? Like, what is a redeemer? We throw these words around as the church so easily. Redeemer and redemption. Redeemed, how I love to reclaim it. What does this mean? Well, to redeem someone is to ransom them, to purchase their freedom by the payment of a price. In its original Greek context, it was used, this word was used to refer to to buying slaves out of slavery or liberating prisoners who had been captured in war. In our modern digital age, right, companies pay ransoms because hackers have come and they have hacked into their computer systems and they hold their data, their information, their computer systems hostage. We might say that when a company pays, you know, five million Bitcoin to some, you know, cyber criminals, what they're doing is they are redeeming 
their information, their data, their computer systems. They're rescuing it by the payment of a price. But what was the price that was paid by Jesus Christ? Of course, as Paul tells us there in verse 25, it was his blood. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, or we might add dollars or Bitcoin. You were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Anyone who believes in Jesus, no matter how weak or strong your faith is, you are a part of the flock of Jesus Christ for whom he laid down his life as a ransom. Does not the costliness of the price that was paid enhance the graciousness of the act. But does not the costliness of the price that was paid also ensure the justice of the act? And that brings us to our final point. We have seen righteousness revealed. We have seen righteousness received. And now I want you to see righteousness reasserted. In verses 25 and 26, Paul gives us another category by which to understand the cross of Jesus. Look at it in verse 25. He speaks of Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. If redemption envisions us as slaves to sin, propitiation envisions us as those who are liable to the wrath of God, the just and holy anger and judgment of God. To say that Jesus was a propitiation means that on the cross he endured the full measure of God's holy wrath against our sin. He drank the whole cup of wrath that was due to us, that that we should have drunk. On the cross, Jesus rendered God propitious toward us. If we receive his bloody work by faith, Paul is telling us, then we can have all confidence that the justice of God has been fully satisfied on the cross. Jesus has paid the penalty in full. God is no longer angry with you if you believe in Jesus. You can sing with Augustus' top lady, complete atonement thou hast made, and two the utmost farthing paid, whate'er thy people owed. Nor can God's wrath on me take place if sheltered by thy righteousness and covered by thy blood. If thou my pardon hast secured and freely in the, my, my stead and my room endured the whole of wrath divine, listen to this, payment God cannot twice demand. First for my bleeding surety's hand and then again for mine. There is no double jeopardy. If payment has been made once, God will not demand it from you twice. When Jesus died on the cross, the justice of God was satisfied. We can say with John Newton, let us wonder, grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. There's nothing more for us to pay because Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. 
We are accepted as righteous in God's sight because our sins have been fully paid for. God has credited, reckoned, imputed our sin to Jesus. And he has punished him for it. Jesus, who knew no sin, but who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, as if we had done everything that he had done. Propitiation is a glorious truth for us as sinners. But propitiation is also a glorious truth for God. And that's the direction that Paul takes this Verse 25, as he moves into verse 26, isn't it? Notice that God the Father is the one who put his son forward as a propitiation. Never imagine that the cross is, is the means by which a loving son wins the heart of a grumpy old angry father over to mercy. No, the cross is the initiative of God the Father. God is the one who put his son forward as, an, as a propitiation. But why did God do this? What does Paul tell us? Why did God do this? Yes, of course, for us. But that's not where Paul goes in verse 26. Paul says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And just as Paul used the word law with different nuances, different meanings, so here he can, is using the word righteousness with different meanings. He's been referring to it as the righteousness that is God's gift. Now, here in verse 26, 25 and 26, he is speaking of righteousness that is God's holy attribute of, of justice. And what is Paul saying? But that the cross of Jesus didn't only do something for us. It didn't only solve a problem that we had. It also did something for God. It solved a, a problem that God had. And of course, as Paul says in chapter 3, I'm speaking in a human manner here, right? What is this problem? Well, the problem that is solved or the solution to the problem is what Paul says there. That, that the cross of Jesus demonstrated it showed, it, it, it reasserted the righteousness of God to all creation. And why did God's righteousness need to be demonstrated and, and displayed and shown and, and reasserted? Well, because as we saw in Acts 17, as we see here, God in his divine forbearance passed over the sins of former generations. That is, he, he overlooked their rebellion. God had not punished them with the wrath that they deserved. God had not meted out the fullness of his justice and his righteousness against them. His forbearance tended to obscure his justice, didn't it? It tended to, to obscure his righteous character, to, to lead it perhaps even to communicate that, you know, God's really sort of indifferent to your sin. God doesn't care what he's doing in salvation. He's really just sort of turning a, a blind eye to what you've done. He's just ignoring your sin. But Paul's answer here is unequivocally, absolutely no. God is not just sweeping sin under the rug in salvation. God, God is not saying, hey, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. He's not saying, look, let's just let bygones be bygones. Let's just forget what you've done. I'll just overlook it. Don't worry about it. No. The cross of Jesus Christ 
is saying that sin must be punished if we are to be accepted and justified by God. God cannot, God does not give us righteousness in a way that negates his own righteousness or that denies his own righteousness. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The the cross of Christ not only justifies us, but in a sense, it justifies God. It vindicates him. It vindicates his character even as he saves undeserving sinners. The cross, as Paul puts it there at the end of verse 26, ensures that God is at the same time just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God has been manifested in a righteous manner. So what does this mean for us? It means ultimately that salvation is not about you. It's not about me. Now, of course, yes, the cross is about us. Right? Paul's told us that here. If we believe in Jesus, we receive the righteousness of God through faith. We are justified. We're redeemed. God is no longer angry with us. But ultimately, Paul is saying, the cross is not about us. The cross is about God's glory most fundamentally. It's about God maintaining his justice and his righteousness. God is God-centered in everything that he does, even in his saving sinners. Think about it this way. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God never falls short of his own glory. God never falls short of the glory of God, but he acts for his glory, for his name's sake, in everything that he does. And so this truth that righteousness has been reasserted in the cross, it should humble us. It should lead us to worship and to adore the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, who has shown us mercy, who has lavished righteousness upon us in Christ in such a way that his own holy character is not sullied. It should lead us to hate sin with all of our might, These sins that led the Lord Jesus to pay a deadly price so that we might receive righteousness. As we see Jesus dying first and foremost for his Father's honor and glory, how we should hate sin, how we should put it to death in our lives. And if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus, you are not believing in him, trusting in him, and don't you see how this glorious truth should lead you immediately to do so? Why? Because if you do not believe in Jesus, you are going to bear the full wrath, the infinite wrath of God in your own person. Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man, he took God's wrath for every single one of those whom the Father had given him. But if you do not trust in Jesus, you will take that wrath for yourself. And so the gospel goes forth to you. The gospel call, the gospel invitation goes forth to you this day. May God give us all grace to believe in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by his grace through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation and his blood, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. 
This is the glorious good news of a righteous God who gives us righteousness while at the same time maintaining his own righteousness. Is there any news better than this? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for this text. So much here, so much meat. Lord, so much to take in, to drink in. Lord, it's overwhelming as we hear it all. In 30 minutes, we ask, oh Lord, that these truths would settle deep within us, that we would be able to meditate on them, that you would bring them back to mind, that we would be able to think on all that you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we do ask that you would work saving, justifying faith in the hearts of anyone here this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus. Lord, be pleased, we pray, to ground our hearts in this gospel of grace, this gospel of righteousness. Lord, we thank you that you are ever and forever a righteous God, but a God who has granted to us a righteousness through faith that we might stand faultless and blameless with great joy before you. To you belong all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.